Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. I invite you to stand as you are able to hear the Gospel of our Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came near and spoke to them. I've received all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now I'd like you all to stand back up again. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. You didn't know you were going to do three sets of 12 squats today, did you? Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you. Glad to be here. Welcome everyone joining us online. Last uh, Sunday, I was in uh, Dublin, Ireland. And since then, I've been to Nashville and I'm here. So I'm not sure what time zone I'm in. And I think you're the right church and I'm in the right place today. I certainly hope so. It is good to be back and had a great time away. My wife came home sick, unfortunately, so she is home nursing a cold, and by some miracle of God, I don't have it. So I'm hoping to keep prayerful about that because being sick right now does not sound like a fun thing to do. You know, uh, this experience of being in church that, that many of you who are in the room are having right now is an experience I did not have as a child growing up. I never went to church as a young person. And I grew up in uh, North Orange County in Southern California, and I lived on a street with a lot of other families, and many of them went to church, but I didn't. So one of the times I went to church was with a vacation Bible school with our Southern Baptist neighbors across the street. One of my earliest memories of going to church as a child was a wedding, one of my cousins. And uh, in the wedding, I was sitting there with my Uncle Howard and my grandpa and my dad, and um, the wedding starts, it's probably, you know, mid-1970s, and one of the groomsmen comes down the aisle, and he's got this beard that's really, really long. I mean, really long. And my Uncle Howard, who's never been to church, he looks over at the guy coming down the aisle, and uh, my grandpa looks at the guy coming down the aisle, and this is my first memory of ever being in a church. And my grandpa sees the guy coming down the aisle with a big beard, and my grandpa was a clean-cut guy. He looks over, and he says, Jesus Christ! And my Uncle Howard says, no, no, that's Moses. (laughs) The whole church erupts in laughter, and that's my first memory of going to church. Now, eventually, I found my way to church, and I'll tell you more about that story in a little bit. Today, we're talking about the vision of our church in a series of messages called Back to Basics, and it's about the vision of our church. 
And we've talked about several components of our vision along this journey so far. Last week, Dr. Brian Lujillo talked with you about the importance of loving people. That's the first part of our church's vision. Today, we're going to take a look at the second part, connect to Jesus. And next week, Pastor Camille is going to bring us a great message about how we serve the world on our uh, Set Free or Freedom Sunday here in the life of this church. So today, let's focus on connect to Jesus connect to Jesus. And for that, we look to a very familiar text in the Bible. It's Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Does anyone here know what we typically call this passage of Scripture? The Great Commission. The Great Commission. Did you know that name was not affixed to this passage until the 1860s? That before then, no one ever called this passage of Scripture the Great Commission. It was just Jesus' parting words to his disciples on a mountain somewhere in Galilee where he ultimately ascended to heaven after his resurrection. And this essential text is where we're going to focus our attention as we talk about what it means to connect to Jesus. And most of us pay attention to the middle of this passage of Scripture where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the part we pay attention to. But there's a part before that and after that in this text that are just as important for us to hear. The first part is where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. That's impressive, wouldn't you say? And then Jesus then in turn gives that authority to his disciples. That shouldn't surprise us. That's in keeping with everything Jesus has done throughout his entire ministry, is everything he has from God, he gives to his disciples. And so even in his final act here on earth, the very last thing Jesus does is give to his disciples. He gives them this authority. That's in verse 16. And then if you go down to verse 19 and verse 20, Jesus says, Lo, I will be with you unto the end of the age. So Jesus promises that his presence would be with us always. So as we talk about the Great Commission, I want us to keep in mind that Jesus has first promised authority. The authority he has is given to us and that he will always be with us. Always be with us. So let's turn our attention to the cream in the middle of the cookie. That part we know so well. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Usually when we read that passage of Scripture, we think the command there is to go. And when we read the text in its original language, that's not quite what it says. The command in the text is actually make disciples. Make disciples. And there's a way that disciples are made, and we're going to talk about that shortly. Make disciples is the commandment. And actually the word is a singular word that Matthew made up. That word never existed anywhere else in the Bible or anywhere else in Greek literature until Matthew 28. Make disciples. Now, that word is in a particular sort of grammar in the Greek language. It's called the imperative. And the imperative mood is when you're giving someone directions that you expect to not be questioned. Make disciples. That's the command. Make disciples. So a couple questions for us to reflect on. We'll put them up on the screen as you think about this. Here's the question. What is a disciple? 
and how do we make one? What is a disciple, and how do we make one? Well, the first part of that question I think is a little easier. What is a disciple? A disciple is a committed follower of Jesus. A committed follower of Jesus. Y'all got that? Say it with me. A committed follower of Jesus. That's a disciple. That's what a disciple is. Okay? So how do we make one, though? Ah, that's where the text gets good. It tells us that the command, the command there is to make disciples, and you do it three ways. The first way is go. The second way, baptize. And the third is to teach. Go, baptize, teach. Those three. Go, baptize, teach. So you see how the language in the verse is a little weird. It says, go, therefore, and make disciples. Actually, the imperative is make disciples. And the first thing you have to do is go. That's number one. So let's talk about going very briefly and what it means for us to reach inward and outward. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, I, I shared with you a quote by one of my favorite preachers, and here it is, Barbara Brown Taylor, who says, the act of worship is an evicting experience. Do you understand why she uses the word evicting? That when we gather together, the notion is to be sent. So the church gathers to be sent. It does not send to gather. The church is gathered to be sent. So as we shared a couple of weeks ago, this is like halftime. So we've lived a week. We're kind of spent, maybe a little tired, looking forward to a little bit of rest. Pastor Camille is going to tell you about the painting they did all day yesterday down in West Seattle. They're spent, the folks who went and helped with that. So now is the recharge, the moment to, to kind of get coached up by the Holy Spirit and then to be sent back out into the world again. This is important work for us to do. The outward task is, we call it evangelism. And that's the work we do of proclaiming the message of Jesus to the world. And that proclamation of the gospel takes a lot of different forms. Some cases it takes the form of leading people to a point where they're ready to accept Jesus Christ as their own Savior and Lord. Other times it simply means the work of manifesting the goodness or the greatness of God so that people might ask why we do such things, then we get to tell them about Jesus. So anytime we leave this place and proclaim the word of Jesus, that's evangelism. Evangelism also is not just doing nice stuff and saying nothing about it. That's not evangelism. Evangelism is a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. So it has an outward sort of expression. And it also has an inward expression in our life as well that we need to pay attention to. And that has to do with our own context, the influences that happen in our own life. Now, y'all know I grew up in California as a young person, and so in fourth grade in California, we all learn California history. All of us do. And we have nice little projects we do in school, and uh, one of the projects we used to do in school was we would build little missions made out of plaster of Paris. It was very exciting. And the reason we made little missions out of plaster of Paris was because of this guy. We're going to show you up on the screen right now. This is Father Junipero Serra, who was a Spanish priest who planted a variety of missions along the California coast, starting actually in Baja, California, and then working his way up the coast as far north is slightly north of San Francisco. These were outposts of Christianity. And for a long time, 
Junipero Serra was kind of honored as kind of the, the patron saint of California. But believe it or not, before Junipero Serra got there, who was living in California? Indigenous and native peoples. And so what we've learned over time is that many of those indigenous or native people, peoples were enslaved by the Spaniards that came along with Junipero Serra and exterminated much of their culture and led them into mass migrations across California. Not a very good history. The history of Washington State is a bit different in that, that there were still indigenous people here that had various forms of displacement. So when I was a kid, we made little missions out of Plaster of Paris to honor Junipero Serra, the missionary that came and brought Christianity to the west coast of California. He also brought empire, slavery, power, abuse, control. So the picture we showed you a moment ago is a statue of Junipero Serra that got toppled about four years ago because there's an intense reaction in California now about what Junipero Serra, or we commonly call him J. Serra, what his ministry and his life meant in that particular period of time. Something Californians wrestle with. I tell you that story only from this standpoint. That each and every one of us have an experience of Jesus, don't we? We have our own experience of Jesus. And the way we encounter Jesus, the way we know Jesus, the way we sense the presence and work of Jesus in our life. The work of going isn't trying to convince everybody else that our experience of Jesus is right. It's the work of helping them experience Jesus in the way that God has called them to experience it. So that means we want to make sure we're conveying the message of Jesus, but we're also at the same time we're not exporting other stuff that's not of Jesus. Missionaries have a word for it. It's called contextualization. It's the way in which we understand the context we're in, the people we're with, and that we want them to meet Jesus, knowing that they don't have to meet the same Jesus exactly the same way we met Jesus. They're different. Same Jesus, different experiences. So that means the work of going requires an internal self-reflection that's focused on other people. The people not here yet. So I want you all to do me a favor, please. I told you you would stand again, didn't I? I'd like you all to stand up. Those of you in the room, and what I'd like you to do, I know this is going to be hard. I want you all to move to the middle. Slide on over. Move to the middle. No, you don't have to come out in the aisle. Stay in your, stay in your seats there, all right? Move to the middle, everyone over, all right? And when you get to the middle, I want you to sit back down again. When you get to the middle, I want you pretty close together, all right? Get to the middle. Okay, now, as we say in the Oklahoma vernacular, I've learned, all y'all, look down the pew that way. How much space is there? Okay, and all y'all over here, I want you to look down the pew that way, and how much space do you see? All right, now how many of you who are in this room right now, especially at this particular worship hour at 9 o'clock, remember when all of that space used to be full? Raise your hand. Good. It's not full today, is it? It's not full today. So all that is to say is that we have work to do, don't we? How do you make disciples? The first thing we have to do is go. 
go. Standing at the door and waiting for people to show up is not evangelism. Because, brothers and sisters, I have a newsflash. They're not coming. We have to go. What did Jesus say? Go not to the Jews, not to Palestine, not to the Holy Land. He said, go to the nations. That Greek word is ethnos. Go everywhere else. In other words, go everywhere that's not here. That's where you go. So when you all leave here today, where are you going? Okay, on the count of three, I want you to all say it out loud together. Where are you going when you leave here today? One, two, three. Well, that was sad. Come on. One, two, three. Good. So wherever you're going, that's the place where God needs you to be a disciple. That's the place where God needs you to be a messenger of the good news. Wherever that place is. Not here. Not here. There. All right? So go is the first one. Now, if you all want to get up and move back to where you were for a little more social distancing, that's fine. You're welcome to do that. Or you can stay where you're at. Totally up to you, okay? Let's talk about baptizing for a minute. Let's talk about baptizing. Remember, there are three things to make a disciple. You have to go and baptize. So baptizing is an important word, and the word baptize is a Greek word, baptizo. It means to dip. And I don't mean like chips and dip. I mean like dip, like immerse. So historically, the church has immersed people for baptism, but we've also figured out how to sprinkle them, pour them, spray them with a fire hose, whatever it takes, right? The modality of the water doesn't matter. What matters is what the water means to us. And it means a few things. So let me list off just a few. It means adoption. It means empowerment, and it means vocation and calling. And I'll talk about vocation and calling a little more in detail. So let's talk about these three pieces of what baptism means. Jesus says that we're to baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the name we Christians use for God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the name. And we're to baptize people into a name. When John the Baptist came baptizing people in the Bible, it says he baptized people for the repentance of sin. He didn't baptize them in any name, just for the repentance of sin. We're baptized into a name, which means our baptism is about identity. It's about who we belong to, who we're a part of, what our lives are about. Our lives are about the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, Baptism is adoption for us because it's being immersed into that identity. So the identity we had before baptism is different from the identity we had after baptism. Let that sink in. The identity we have before baptism is different than the identity we have after baptism. Not only is this about adoption, it's about empowerment. Because when we're baptized, that's when we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and we receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit comes upon us at our baptism. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are put within us. Now, it may take some of us time to figure out what those gifts are, but they're all given to us then. 
The last thing baptism is about is about calling and vocation. That means the way in which God intends you to use those gifts and to use who you are is given to you in your baptism. Everybody. So baptism is a a work in our life that lets us know who we are. That's adoption. Baptism is an act that helps us understand and know what God's empowerment is for our life to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And baptism also gives us our calling and vocation, the thing we know we're supposed to be doing. So in any point in our life, when we forget who we are, where do we go to relearn that? Back to our baptism. At any moment in our life when we feel disempowered and feel like we don't have the capacity to overcome any situation in our life, the moment in our life that grounds us is our baptism. When we feel like we're not quite sure what the purpose of our life is supposed to be, where do we go? Back to our baptism. I was baptized on April the 15th, 1982. It's a very important day. Because all those things I just described happen to me on that day. Baptism is not a party in which we celebrate a person's profound insight to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Baptism is not a celebration of us. Baptism is a celebration of God. It's an affirmation. Because who adopts us? Do we adopt ourselves? Of course not. God adopts us. Do we ourselves give ourselves gifts? Of course not. God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do we just decide what our calling is? Well, most people do. But the reality of baptism is that God gives us our calling. Friends, we live in a world in which most people think they're going to get out of this thing alive. And the reality is, is that we acknowledge that the only way to get out of this alive is eternal life, grounded in our baptism. And when we live a life grounded in that baptism, the world changes and is transformed. So let me ask a few more questions here. What is your life's calling? How do you express it? What gifts, talents, and skills do you bring for it? And does your life have a clear purpose? Those are weighty questions. Does your life have a clear purpose? And so whether you're in the room today and you're 8 years old or you're 80 years old, those are important questions for us to weigh and think about. Do we know how to answer those questions? Our baptism helps us reference that. And our job is to go and baptize to go and baptize. So go, baptize. What's the third one? Teach. Teach. When we talk about teaching, we're talking about transforming lives. Now notice what Jesus says in this text, in Matthew 28. Jesus does not say, teaching everyone to obey everything. That's not what he says. He says, teaching them to follow or observe all that I have commanded you. So follow the equation, okay? We're going to teach people to follow what I've commanded you. And so what happens to us most of the time when we talk about teaching, we talk about teaching people what Jesus commanded. 
right? Which in many ways is an effort of the mind. I need to read the Bible, I need to study, I need to learn, I need to grasp information, I need to hold what Jesus commanded. But that's not being a disciple. I know lots of people who know lots about God and lots about the Bible, and they're kind of just mean, nasty people. Jesus didn't say becoming a disciple is just learning everything that was commanded. No. He said, teach them to follow or observe all I have commanded you. So knowing about what Jesus commanded is important. Learning the Bible is important. Learning the stories of Jesus are important. But the work of the church is actually teaching people to follow that. There's a difference. There's a difference between teaching people what Jesus said and teaching people how to follow what Jesus said. Do you see the distinction? Maybe it's just a bit of a nuance for us, but it's an important one. So we spend a lot of time talking about what Jesus said and teaching people that. We do that in Sunday school classes, both adults and for children. We do that in a lot of these spaces, don't we? We teach people what Jesus said, did, and what that means. But we don't spend as much time talking about how we follow what Jesus said. Now, Methodists, that's us, historically have focused more on the following part than the commandment part. So here's our friend once again, John Wesley. And what John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, said is that we're spending a lot of time talking about God, but we're not spending much time learning how to follow God. So what if we put a lot of energy and effort into how to follow God and to follow what Jesus says? So John Wesley created, next slide, the class meeting, little tiny small group. And this small group would meet together, and there was no teacher in that group. There was a leader, but no teacher. The idea of the group is that people would come together and talk about how their following was going for that week. What's working well? What's not working well? Where did you succeed this week spiritually? Where did you fail this week spiritually? How can we pray for one another spiritually? So many of you who are in this room right now, you're going to leave this sanctuary this morning, those of you who are here, and you're probably going to go to the Samaritans or Koinonia, right? Go ahead and nod your heads. Let me ask you a question about those experiences. What's the most impactful part of Koinonia or Samaritans, those adult Sunday school classes, is it what you learned or is it the relationships, the community, and the living of life together as believers? Which has been more impactful for you? What you learned or the relationships and the community you had together? See, I think those relationships and community, the following of Jesus together is what makes those experiences incredibly rich. Yesterday we had a memorial service for Marky Barrett who started one of the adult Sunday school classes in this church. And part of the witness of his own life and for many of you is the sense of community you have together, a sense of relationships you have. Those relationships become the vehicle by which you learn how to be followers of Jesus because you're accountable to one another. You're watching over one another in love. You're caring for each other. When one of you is sick, everybody knows it, and they rally to that person. Do you see how that's different than just learning stuff about Jesus? 
There's a rich experience in that. The early Methodists called this a class meeting or a small group. And in the life of our church, teaching people to follow Jesus will take the shape. We will have more small groups, not less. We'll have more opportunities for people to be together in Christian community, living life together. It's important work for us to do, and we want to pay attention to it. So friends, do you know how churches grow? Over 80% of the people who come to a church for the first time come on the elbow of somebody else. In other words, they come with a friend or someone who invited them or whatever. Why would you invite somebody? So if like the church worship service is totally boring and the music's bad and nothing's really going on and the place is dead, would you bring people to that? No, it's like if I go to a movie theater and I see a bad movie, do I tell people to go see it? Or do I say, no, it's a bad movie, stay away from it? The only other thing we deal with in human life that's not like that is milk. As soon as we open milk and it smells bad, what do we do? We hand it to somebody else, say, this milk smells bad, do you think so? Churches grow because there's transformation happening in them. Lives are being changed. Futures are being shifted. Eternities are being moved in people's lives. People are excited about that, and they want to come participate in that, and so they want to bring people to that. That's why churches grow. And the more and more that happens in the life of our church, the more and more our church will grow. So here's the big news today. Pastors don't grow churches. The Lord grows churches through people. Pastors, we can kill them pretty quick. It's hard to gather a room of people, but I know how to empty a room very quickly. So friends, remember, teaching one another is about having this kind of community where lives are touched and transformed and changed and people become followers of Jesus in those spaces. When that happens, people want more of that. And it's exciting to see that happen. It happens in this church right now. It happens in this church right now, and what we need to do is more of it. We need to turn the volume up on all the ways in which our lives are being transformed. So, the commandment is to make disciples, and you do it three ways, right? What are they? You got to go, baptize, teach. Everyone got it? Go, baptize, teach. So let's look at a few questions about teaching. I want to ask you this. How is your own discipleship growing? And maybe this week, take a moment to describe the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life. What might a next step be in your life? Put some time into that this week. Reflect and pray. Ask the Lord. Say, God, how, how are you calling me to take the next step in my discipleship? What would help me grow in my own life to become a better follower of Jesus Christ. When I was 12, my family decided to move from rural, from suburban Buena Park, California. I grew up next to Disneyland. And we moved to rural Oklahoma, out in the middle of nowhere, in eastern Oklahoma. 
And when I moved to Oklahoma, the town we lived in had a population, according to the 1980 census, of 459 people. Big town, huh? And so my parents decided that me going to school in that one-room schoolhouse in that little town in Oklahoma might be too much of a shock to the system since I just left the junior high school with 1,300 students. And so they had me go to school in the neighboring town, which was a burgeoning metropolis of 3,000 people. And that's where I went to school as a seventh grader when we moved from California to Oklahoma. When I started school in Oklahoma, I went to school the first day wearing a pair of slip-on Vans, OP corduroy pants, a hang 10 t-shirt. I looked like someone from California. Like if you called Central Casting and said, send a young Californian over. So I arrived at school my first day and students looked down at my feet. I was wearing slip-on Vans. And they said, why are you wearing your slippers to school? Because they're all wearing boots, right? But I made a few friends at school very quickly when I first started. And um, there were five of them all together. And so one of the first questions they asked me when they were getting to know me was, where do you go to church? And you all know how I'd answer that question, right? I don't go to church. I've never gone to church. And so during uh, our breaks between classes and over lunchtime, and then eventually during our, our PE time, our physical education time, they got special permission from the teacher to spend time talking with me during PE time. They started telling me about Jesus. Not about their church, not about what they knew about Jesus, but just about Jesus. They talked to me about the things Jesus said and did. They talked to me about his death and resurrection, and they talked to me about his coming again. Five 13-year-olds and me. And so after several weeks of this conversation going on with them talking to me, not about their church, I had no idea where they went to church, just about Jesus, I looked at them and said, what do I need, what do, I need to do? How do I respond to this? And they said, you should, you should pray with us and ask Christ to come into your life. And so on January 17, 1981, on a very snowy day, at about 10.30 in the morning, I prayed and asked Christ into my life for the first time. And I had never met an adult Christian up to that point. And so after I prayed and asked Christ into my life, I then asked him, I said, well, now what do I do? And they said, now you go to church. And I said, well, where do you all go to church? And they said, we go to the fill-in-the-blank Methodist church. I'm still here. I'm still here. 2021 was the 40th anniversary of my spiritual birthday. A moment when my life changed forever. Without those five 13-year-olds, I would not be here today. Jesus saved my life through those five students. And so I went to church and I met the pastor. We called him Brother Larry, the Methodist church. I told him the story and he didn't quite believe it. So much so that he made me repeat the process. He wanted to make sure that the teenagers got it right. And then he baptized me. And then he, along with dozens upon dozens upon dozens of other people, taught me how to follow Jesus. And it's something I'm still learning today. 
And over the almost three months I've been here, you all are still teaching me how to do that. So for that, I'm eternally grateful. Look at all the empty space in here. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he said, lo, I'll be with you until the end of the age. So, if I can be here, certainly the people who aren't here yet can be here. Friends, we have a fantastic church filled with beautiful people. And the Lord says to us that we can fill it. Shall we? Shall we? Yeah. We can do it. Not because we're so great, but because God is great. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for gathering us in as your people, for filling us with your spirit, and for reminding us always that our work is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the adoption, for the gifts and the graces, for the empowerment and the calling that comes from you. And Lord, this day I'm thankful for those five 13-year-olds that shared the very message of Jesus with me, without whom I would not have found my way through this life. And so as we gather this day, we give thanks for all those that have influenced us, shaped us, and have taught us how to be followers of Jesus. This Jesus, who came and gave everything for us, it's in his name we gather, and it's his name we give thanks. Thank you.